thing. I'm one of those who um, has a hard time walking and chewing gum at the same time, and that translates into um, clapping and singing at the same time. I can only do one or the other. I do like clapping, though. All right, we're in Romans chapter 14. Josh read the whole chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to read it again. Do you remember the meaning of the phrase? It's a Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. Uh, out of many, one. And that's a phrase that is supposed to apply to our country, the United States of, of America. And the idea is um, we've always been a land of immigrants. And so throughout our history, people have come from all over the world uh, different places, different cultures, different languages, uh, different people groups. And um, from that diversity, we've agreed as a country that we would be one. It's not that we give up our diversity as Americans, but there are certain ideals that are supposed to unite us as Americans, and we, we commit ourselves together to those ideals. And I don't know about you, but uh, in my lifetime, I can't remember any time like today in our nation's history when uh, e pluribus unum, it's like, a, uh, it's like a relic of our past. It's um, not really the the thing that motivates us anymore. It's not really true. We, we seem to be, as a people, uh, not, not only dividing into different tribes, but uh, those principles that make our country great, that have made our country great, a lot of Americans hate and seem to be against, and so we seem to be coming apart at the seams as a, as a culture. Well, that is not what is supposed to happen in the church. And just like America, where um, there's unity and diversity, diversity and, and unity, that's also the, the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to save a multitude of sinners from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. And we, we unite together in our devotion to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does, it, that doesn't mean that we deny our cultural background and, and heritage. It doesn't mean that we put on a Christian uniform or something like that. But it means that whatever is different about us, the thing that we celebrate and emphasize is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our devotion to Jesus, people see our unity and they can see our love for one another. That's the biblical ideal. That's what the Apostle Paul deals with in uh, all of chapter 14 and on into chapter 15 as well. 
And, and uh, the, the reason he has to deal with this issue of Christian e pluribus unum, if you will, um, is that there were threats to it in the church in Rome. And there continue to be threats to Christian unity, real gospel-centered, Christ-exalting Christian unity. So it's going to do us a lot of good um, to study this portion of the Word of God. And also it gives us an opportunity to put on display to our culture um, what the gospel looks like. The gospel does not look like a bunch of Christians um, trying to look like a cookie-cutter three dozen or so uh, batch of cookies, but it also doesn't look like us retreating into our corners and then warring with each other as well. Christianity looks like in our differentness, there's unity, especially in Jesus. All right, so that's the introduction. The theme here in these verses, verses 1 through 12 in Romans chapter 14, is don't judge one another. Don't judge one another. Um, several times that word judge is used in the, in the passage. Uh, judgment, don't pass judgment. And we'll see what that's all about. So don't judge one another. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. And first of all, this thing is... There we go. The first thing that Paul uh, instructs us about is don't judge regarding what we put into our bodies, verses 1 through 4. Don't judge regarding what we put into our bodies. So in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's an important sentence. It really sets the stage for the rest of this section. Remember all of chapter 14 and on into chapter 15. So let's make sure we're clear about some of these terms that Paul uses. The one who is weak in faith. Who, who is that? Um, it means someone whose faith in Christ has not grasped the freedom to which God has called us. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. And freedom in that context means a whole bunch of rules and regulations and externals and rituals. We're, we're free regarding all of that. We're, we're not in a Christianized old covenant with its elementary principles. No, Christ has set us free from that. And someone who's weak in the faith, according to Paul's usage here in this passage, is, is someone who hasn't grasped that. Their, their faith hasn't grasped that freedom that they enjoy in, in Christ. He's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to say that their salvation is hanging in the balance, but he does call them weak in faith. Then he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. 
And that's a pretty strong word. I'm going to read here from New Testament commentator Douglas Moo, who wrote, The verb means receive or accept into one's society, home, circle of acquaintance, and implies that the Roman Christians were not only to tolerate the weak, but that they were to treat them as brothers and sisters in the intimate fellowship typical of the people of God. That, that's helpful. Welcome one another. Don't just tolerate. Don't only invite people into your house who are exactly like you. But welcome all the brethren into the circle of your fellowship. And then that last word in verse 1, opinions. This is very important. Because we are supposed to have opinions. He, he just got through telling us in uh, chapter 13 about the importance of the Ten Commandments, for example. We're supposed to have opinions about the Ten Commandments. Opinions are things that don't fall under the umbrella of the Ten Commandments. You could think of them that way. To, to do something or to not do something, it's not sinful. The, the Ten Commandments don't say, you shall not or you shall. There, there's no specific prohibition or requirement in the law of God regarding this opinion. And we all have opinions. We can't function without having opinions. We, we get up in the morning and we do the things that we do from day to day. There's all kinds of decisions that we make, all kinds of choices that we make. There's preferences that we have. There's personal reasons why we do this thing and not that thing, or that thing and not this thing. Those are opinions. But the point here in Romans chapter 14 is that even though I have a whole host of opinions on a whole bunch of matters, I'm not supposed to apply those opinions as a test to whether or not I'm going to welcome you into my inner circle. That's what's going on here in Romans chapter 14. Well, what was the issue within the church at Rome? Why is he talking about this particular subject specifically? Well, notice verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So here is this strong and weak um, dynamic the, the, the strong person embraces his or her liberty in Christ to eat whatever when it comes to conscience. So that's the first person. He believes he may, he may eat anything. Uh, that doesn't mean everything's good for you. Doesn't mean everything's helpful. Doesn't mean everything is not poisonous. But in terms of being obedient to God, in terms of having a good conscience before 
God, you may eat anything. That's the strong person. And by the way, Paul affirms this position. He's going to go on to say that. But then on the other hand, there's the weak person. And the weak person eats only vegetables. He's a vegetarian. And again, it's not for health reasons. There are good health reasons to be vegetarian. It's not for medicinal purposes. This is for religious purposes, for moral purposes. This person has chosen to be a vegetarian. This person intentionally abstains from meat because this person's conscience dictates that. that that's what's going on. And who is this person? Well, we've seen several times in the book of Romans that there was this, there was this tension within the church between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And, and this dietary regulation falls under that umbrella. But as you'll recall from your understanding of the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament dietary regulations didn't include vegetarianism. You couldn't eat pork and be a faithful Jew, but there were lots of other kinds of animals whose meat you could eat. And so Old Testament Judaism did not require vegetarianism. But these Jewish believers, Jewish Christians in Rome probably thought something like this. I can't find any kosher meat here in Rome. There's meat sacrificed to idols all over the place. Who knows how the meat was prepared? Who knows where it came from? Who knows how it was raised and mixed and bred? Who knows what kinds of hands touched it? And so just to be on the safe side, I'm not going to eat any of it. It's better to eat no meat at all than to eat meat that is defiled. That's probably what was going on in the mindset of these um, weak folks, these weak brothers. And so you have two distinct groups within the church. People thought they could eat anything. Another group thought they could eat only vegetables. How in the world are they supposed to get along? How do they coexist in the same church? How do they manifest the kind of unity that brings glory to God? Well, verse 3. Paul comes right out and issue, issues these commands to both sides. Let not the one who eats, remember this person thinks he could eat anything, despise the one who abstains. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. I recognize that I have liberty in Christ to eat anything. And here's someone else who doesn't. I'm going to look down on them. I'm going to despise them. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And on the other hand, let not the one who abstains, the vegetarian, pass judgment on the one who eats. That's what's going on in the heart, despising passing judgment. How can you call yourself a Christian and eat meat that may have been defiled, may have been sacrificed to idols? And maybe that example sounds ridiculous to us, but fill in the blank. How can you call yourself a Christian? Or really, it's in our minds. So we do this judging in our minds. How can so-and-so call herself a Christian and dot, 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 dot. And remember, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about a moral issue that Paul addresses in other places with language like, do not be deceived. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We're not talking about something like that. We're talking about something that is indifferent, morally speaking. So there's this tendency to despise and to pass judgment. And what's wrong with that? End of verse 3. For God has welcomed him. This is our justification. God has welcomed him, this, this other brother or sister. Not on the basis of this particular issue, but on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This other person was born a sinner and lived a life of sin and rebellion and self-will until the day when God called that person to himself in salvation. And that person put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's righteousness was imputed to that person's account. And Christ took the blame for that person's sins. He was justified. He was sanctified. He was adopted. He was brought near to God. God welcomed him on the basis of that. And so if that's the basis on which God welcomes sinners, who are we to add to that or to take, to take away from that? That's, that's the idea. How can you not welcome someone to yourself whom God has welcomed to himself? That's what's at stake. And so just to add some more examples, we're talking about things that we put into our bodies. Specifically, there's meat, there's vegetables. There are other issues like this. There's the issue of drinking alcoholic beverages that Paul does mention in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So that was on the table as far as the issues of the day, issues of division within the church, drinking alcoholic beverages. There's various diet crazes. And you know what I mean. There's the diet craze of the week. 
eat only this and not that and eat only this many meals a day or whatever. And we can get involved in a diet that really works for us and then we can have this tendency to despise and to pass judgment on people who don't see things the same thing that, the same way that we do. And by the way, let me say that this is a reason why I'm leery of uh, food types of things, diet types of things in the church. Because, because the, the church gets behind it or gets involved in it, then it can give the impression that, well, if you follow this diet, then you're really spiritual. And if you're not interested in this diet, then, wow, maybe you're not really saved. And then, of course, there's the issue that has really been uh, prominent in our culture and even in our church to, so, to some degree, the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And I am just going to say that whether you choose to get vaccinated or you choose not to get vaccinated for COVID-19 will not ex uh, affect your standing before God. It's not going to impact your walk with God. You can be a believer and walk in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ as a vaccinated or an unvaccinated person. And so many other examples of things that we put into our bodies don't judge regarding what we put into our bodies. Then Paul goes on to talk about another judgy subject. Verses 5 through 9. Don't judge regarding holy days. Don't judge regarding holy days. Note verse 5. By the way, I've skipped over verse 4. Let me close out that section. So God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Jesus has purchased us with the price of his own blood. We belong to him. He's our Lord. He's our master. We're his servants. We're his bond slaves. We belong to him. Every believer belongs to Jesus. We don't have the right to judge the one who belongs to Jesus. And this, this uh, isn't a... Um, a, a dictatorial, oppressive kind of slavery either. Because at the end of verse 4, Paul says that the believer, the, the, the one who belongs to the master Jesus, the believer will be upheld, for it's the Lord himself who's able to make him stand. And the point is, it's all independent of this issue, this opinion. It's all about Jesus and his work of redemption, his grace in the life of that other person has nothing to do with whether the person toes the line or not with respect to whatever issue we're talking about. All right, now we're ready for number two. Don't judge regarding holy days. So back in verse five now. One person 
esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What's being talked about there? Again, this seems to fit in the um, paradigm of Jewishness versus non-Jewishness. Not only did the law of Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law of Moses, not only did it include dietary regulations, but it also included an entire calendar. Holy days and weeks and months and, and years. Paul refers to this system in Galatians 4 and verse 10. Days and months and seasons and years. In Colossians 2 and verse 16, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so if you were a Jew who believed in Christ, there's this tendency to want to hold on to your Jewishness and follow Christ at the same time. And for some, not all, but for some, their, their identity was very much bound up in and put on display by their observing the Jewish religious calendar. And Paul says, you know, you may esteem one day better than another, or someone else may esteem all days alike. What's the key? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Follow your conscience. If your conscience is conv uh, convinced that it's okay to not keep Passover, then don't keep it. If you're convinced in your mind that that's something that is good for your edification, then do it. But don't make it a condition of fellowship with other believers. And frankly, I think that it's worth pausing for a moment and asking, um, what about the fourth commandment? Remember the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor uh, and do all of your work and the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God in it. You shall do no work, neither you nor your manservant, your maidservant, etc. The fourth commandment. How does that apply here when Paul says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. There's a lot of Christians, bless their hearts, who believe that the fourth commandment falls under verse five here. In other words, for the Christian, there is no fourth commandment. There, there is no Sabbath principle because how can you refer to a day as a Sabbath or to use New Testament language, the Lord's Day, in light of Romans 14 and verse 5. Then there are other believers, bless their hearts, 
who are strict Sabbatarians. And to them, Christians pretty much are supposed to obey the fourth commandment with Jewish old covenant-like strictness, except instead of the seventh day of the week, it's supposed to be the first day of the week. And I believe that the truth is actually kind of between those two, those two positions. Let me, let me explain. First of all, in Romans chapter 13, we've already seen Paul's reference to the Ten Commandments. Remember verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you, sh you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Now there, Paul is concentrating on the second table of the law, which is summarized in the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but it also suggests, doesn't it, the other commandments that belong to the first table of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And where do we find the Sabbath commandment but within the Ten Commandments? It, it's within this body of law from God that is moral that these other representative commandments in verse 9 belong to. So it would be interesting for Paul to then say, by the way, there's, there's this one commandment, the fourth commandment, which has no bearing on you as, as a believer. Okay? And then look with me in Genesis chapter 2. This is very important. Genesis chapter 2. When was the Sabbath, the Sabbath principle, when was it instituted? Notice in Genesis chapter 2. And where are we in Genesis chapter 2? We're at the beginning. We're at creation. Starting in verse 1, we read this. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now I ask you, why did God rest? Was God tired? Did God need to renew his strength? Did God need to take a nap? God has all power. He's omnipotent. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He did not need to rest for himself. He rested. He worked six days. And then he rested on the seventh day as an example, as a pattern to Adam and Eve, whom he created in his own image. And the idea was that Adam and Eve and everyone who has come from Adam and Eve, all of their offspring, 
they're supposed to follow this same pattern. They're supposed to be a seven-day week. And isn't it amazing, by the way, that we still have a seven-day week? Do you know that during the French Revolution, which was all based on atheism, they tried to get rid of the seven-day week and substitute it with a 10-day week. And thank God that dissipated. To this day, even as uh, unbelievers continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, shake their fists at God, and deny God, we still live our lives in a seven-day-week framework. And God meant it to be so. So that in the text of the fourth commandment, we're given the reason for observing one day in seven as a day of rest. For in six days, the Lord your God made heaven and earth, everything that he did, and then he rested. And we're supposed to do the same thing as a pattern. With me so far? So when did the fourth commandment originate? At creation itself. Just like the, the uh, ordinance of marriage and work, Sabbath-keeping is a creation ordinance. It's not peculiarly Jewish. When we come along into the Mosaic Covenant, there were a whole bunch of additions to the marriage institution and to the work institution and to the Sabbath institution that made those creation ordinances um, distinctively Jewish in their application within Israel. But they began, the heart of the matter, the, the kernel of the matter began at creation. And then remember this passage that we've seen not too long ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. What tablets of stone could Paul possibly be talking about? Oh, I don't know. The, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. The ink refers to a letter that Paul himself might write. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So, so think with me on this. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise that you can read about in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 34, which promised, promised that a day was coming when the law would be put in a new location, not on tablets of stone, but God promised that he was going to put them in their minds, and write them on their hearts. Paul says 
That day has come. The new covenant is being fulfilled through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as believers are coming into God's holy nation, not Israel, but the church. And and think with me on this. What is it that was written on those two tablets of stone? Say it together. The Ten Commandments. What is it that is now written on our hearts, the tablets of our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Say it. No, the nine. Do you see that? That which, is, which was written on tablets of stone have now been written on our hearts. By virtue of the new covenant blessing of the Holy Spirit. So does that mean that we're supposed to be observing the last day of the week like the Jews did? Does it mean that if someone is caught outside their their house picking up sticks that we should all go over there and stone them to death? No. Because that is part of the addition to the Sabbath principle that was added during the, um, the Mosaic dispensation, if you will. Jesus has done away with all of that. So all of the um, dietary regulations, all of the holy days, gone, done forever in Christ. What, what's left is the kernel, the, the Ten Commandments, that are all summarized in the two great commandments that the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts. So that the New Testament says, look in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that is the kernel of truth that now abides for believers. We are still supposed to gather together as the uh, assembled people of God for the purpose of worship. We're not supposed to neglect that. And not only is that good for us, and not only is that honoring to God, but it's part of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment requires that. And to carry the idea further, from creation until the coming of Christ, the day that was appropriate for Sabbath keeping was the last day of the week because that's the day that God rested during creation week. But since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus rested from his great work of redemption, it is most appropriate for Christians to Sabbath on the first day of the week. And that's why throughout the book of Acts, when the apostles organized local churches and expected them to meet together, it was on the first day of the week. And that's that's another subject. So back to Romans chapter 14. I believe 
that there is a moral kernel of the fourth commandment that remains for believers. And that's what's referred to in Hebrews chapter 10. Theoretically, it could be a different day. I know of a, um, a 1689 Baptist church in Israel. Guess what day of the week they meet on? The seventh. They, they meet on the, the Jewish Sabbath because that's what's unoffensive and wouldn't cause a stumbling block to their Jewish neighbors. But regarding especially all of the, um, the other aspects of the Jewish calendar, one person esteems all days alike, one person esteems one day better, better than, than another. And why should we do what we do, by the way? Whether it's eating, whether it's observing a day, why should we do it? Verse 6, back in Romans 14. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he, give, he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. It's all about God. It's not about us. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, verse 9, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. By the way, that chunk of scripture that we just read from in Romans chapter 14, that's part of the, um, the answer to the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're from a Christian Reformed tradition, you'll, you'll recognize it. The, the question is so wonderful and comforting. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism. All right, moving on. We'll wrap this up pretty quickly. This is why judging one another is wrong. It's already been suggested by Paul in the verses that we've seen, but now he gets really specific starting in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? We, we're supposed to think of one another, pray for one another, interact with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we're supposed to embrace for one another, for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, what we embrace for ourselves. For example, there is therefore now no condemnation to the one who's in Christ Jesus. Don't you rejoice in the truth of Romans 5 and verse 1 for yourself? 
we have to rejoice in that truth for our brothers and sisters and not judge or condemn them since God doesn't condemn. There is no condemnation for them. Moving on in verse 10, or you, why do you despise your brother? And that's what ends up happening. It's a matter of the heart. We would never say it. We wouldn't verbalize it. That would be embarrassing. Not to mention unspiritual. But in our heart of hearts, test the Apostle Paul on this. In our heart of hearts, when somebody does things different than we do, when their convictions are different than our convictions, there's something deep inside that despises them. Here's the thing. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That is the great leveler of the playing field. You're not going to judge. You're not going to get to impose your particular conviction on everybody else. No, you're, you, like me, like everyone else, we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We're all going to be there. And then Paul refers to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23 in these words, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Who are we? Who am I? To judge you. And then Paul really brings this home. Verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And the idea is that that will be so gripping. It will occupy so much of our attention that we're not going to have the time or the energy to look around at everybody else and judge them. By the way, think of it this way too. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will give an account of ourselves to God concerning our judging one another. Are you judgy? Do you have a tendency to condemn others, to look down on others? You'll be judged for that. Paul says. I'm going to conclude at, at this point, but do you know what the heart and the soul of all of this instruction is? That the reason why it's possible for us to not judge each other, for us to not get distracted with secondary matters and Issues for, for, for us to not divide up into our tribes. The reason why this is all possible is because Jesus was judged in our place. Amen. 
all of the wrath, all of the condemnation, all of the punishment from the infinitely holy and righteous God that my sins deserve, that your sins deserve, all of that was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ when he hung upon the cross. It was that cup of God's wrath that he looked into in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It was him staring into that cup that made him sweat great drops of blood. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he drank that cup of God's wrath to the end, to the bottom, so that none of it is left, so that just before he gave up his life, he said, it is finished. And if that's true, and if I'm putting my hope and trust for my salvation in that, then there shouldn't be anything left for me to judge you because you have different convictions than I do. Thank God for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May nothing else be allowed to come into our church, into our hearts, obstruct and interfere with our fellowship so that everyone can see that the gospel is the main thing. And compared to the gospel, nothing else really matters. Let, let's pray. Lord, we pray. Make it so in our hearts and in our fellowship together. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a bright and shining light in the darkness of the division that is tearing our country apart. May people see us and see our love for you and our love for one another and our commitment to make the gospel the main thing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.